We're in our series called Friendology. This is part five, and uh, the sermon title this morning is A Fresh Start. A Fresh Start. We'll be in Matthew 18. I'm going to do something that I haven't done in a long time, but I really enjoy doing. I'm going to read the entire chapter to you. Uh, I'm going to read the entire chapter, and I'm going to go verse by verse, uh, because I want you to understand something. The Bible was put in this order through divine um, inspiration, but more than that, because it has an order. Uh, like literally whenever Jesus starts preaching about something, you might think, well, I'll take this one verse and I'll apply it here. Remember, that's taking scripture out of context. Um, so how he says something and what he says is just as important as the setting it's in. Okay, so you need to understand that. So very rarely do you have Jesus have just one-offs and it's just one thing. Usually he is building on a major principle when he's preaching. Uh, the theological term for this is called a discourse. So in the scriptures there are many discourses, which are sermons that Jesus preached for a long period of time. Okay, so that's the big thing. So you're going to learn a lot this morning. Some of you are like nerds. You're like, I love this stuff. Uh, you're going to be taking notes because it is really fascinating to see how Jesus builds on these points. Some of you who like just, I don't know, just humdingers, you're going to be like, wah, wah, wah. Uh, you know, but for the most part, because I'm going to really try to show you how to get a lot out of the text today. A lot out of the text today. So we'll be looking at Matthew 18, verse number 1. I'm going to read 1 through 14, and then I'm going to come back and break those down, and then we'll look at the second half. Um, at the end of the sermon, okay? So uh, our first point is friendship requires humility. Friendship requires humility. We'll be looking at Matthew 18, verse number 1. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling him a child, he put him on in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like, a ch like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such as a child in my name receives him. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, if we stopped right there, you would probably think that we're going to preach about children today, but that's not his meaning. That's not the context. And let's keep on reading and see what's going on here. Look what he says in verse number 7. Woe to the world for temptation to sin, for it is necessary that temptation comes, but woe to the one who temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into the, the after it's better to you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Um, verse number 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine and never went, that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. 
So this is pretty amazing. If you think about the building up of principles here, if you think about what Jesus is doing, once again, if you read the text just in segments, if you were to go through, like your Bible probably looks a lot like this Bible, where it says, you know, who is the greatest is verses 1 through 6. Verses 7 through 9 is temptation to sin. Verses 10 through 14 is the parable of the lost sheep. And so you look at these three things, and you might be thinking, like many people who just read through the Bible, they're not connected. But you have to remember here, Jesus is a master storyteller. And Jesus is the best preacher that ever existed. Amen. And so because of those reasons, I want you to really understand that we need to read the Bible horizontally, I mean vertically and horizontally. So what do I mean by that? We need to learn how to read the Bible horizontally and vertically. Vertically, why? Because everything in Scripture is building on to the next piece of Scripture. There's not anything else besides that to really think about in a gospel. Whenever the gospel starts off, it is made to be read in the order it is given because that's the flow of the narrative. That is the flow of Jesus' life. That's the theme of the author that the Holy Spirit is inspiring trying to get to come across. And so because of that, and I said read vertically and then read horizontally, horizontally we're reading across the Gospels. So that means we take this story, we compare it to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and see, is there any differences? Once again, there's going to be a lot of stuff you're going to hear. You're probably not going to love it, but you're going to need it. Amen. So Matthew and Mark and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic meaning one eye. Synoptic meaning they all three are very, 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 very similar. All three of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have the same flow, have the same structure, you could say, have the same stuff in them. John is a renegade. Uh, John is over here. He's writing stuff that everybody else doesn't have. I mean, he's writing things, and you're thinking, what in the world? Where does this come from? Because his partake of the scriptures is different than those guys. Luke and Matthew, it's told that based on theological evidence, based on historical evidence, that they use Mark's structure to build their gospels. Once again, I lost some of you back in verse number one, amen. Uh, stay with me, stay with me. I'm saying this to get you to understand here that when Jesus is preaching, he's not just after one point. He's not just after one thing. He's not after you to think about, yes, we should be really kind to children. We should be really kind to kids. And if we're not kind to kids, you're going to put a millstone around somebody's neck and throw them in the thicket. Some of y'all thinking, amen, I can get behind that. And then you're thinking, you know, the second part, you're thinking, hey, if you, if, if you have sin issues, cut your daggum hand off. Uh, you know, if that was the case, we would all have nubs and no eyes, amen. Uh, because let's be honest with you, so that's not what he's after. And then that last part, you're thinking, what does a child and cutting your hand off have to do with a sheep on a mountain? Uh, you know what I mean? Like literally, when you look at that, you're thinking, these are three things. Three of these are not like the other, amen. Uh, because this does not make any sense. But you have to remember what Jesus is trying to get you to understand here. And it starts off in the very first verse. It's the disciples who are leading this whole conversation. They said what? Who is the greatest among us? Who is the greatest among us? And what does Jesus do? Jesus does the thing he always does, which is very beautiful. He takes the surrounding things around him and brings it into the conversation to say, the kingdom of heaven is like this. My, my people will be like this. And this is exactly what he's doing here. They want to be worried about worldly things, but Jesus is about to take worldly things and show them heavenly things. So he grabs a child, he puts it in their midst, and he says, if you want to be the greatest, look what he says to them. If you want to be the greatest, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse number four, though, look what he says. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest 
in the kingdom of heaven. So look what he does here. They have a question about who's the greatest, and Jesus flips it, and he says, you're, you're worried about all the wrong things because greatness in my kingdom is not about your stature and your socioeconomic background. Greatness in my kingdom is not about anything that has to do with you. Greatness in my kingdom has to do with your humility. Are you going to be humble? And he takes this child, and he places a child, and you might be thinking, my kids ain't humble. Uh, let me tell you some kids back in this day were humble for a lot more reasons than our kids were, amen? Our kids are entitled, amen? Uh, so do understand that these kids were a lot more humble, because why? You have to understand, a child during this situation, during this time period, brought no worth as far as economic value to the table. They didn't have a job. They could maybe help out with the, with the school. They could, I mean, they couldn't maybe help out around the, around the home. They couldn't really do a whole lot of things. At the end of the day, though, the child was completely dependent on their parents to take care of them. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you want to talk about your pride, talk about how you're the greatest, but what I'm after is people that really realize they have nothing without the Father taking care of them. So that's what he does. He really he flips it over on top of them and says, no, 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 you have to be like a child. You have to be humble like this little child. You have to really understand that if God doesn't do things for you, you're incapable of doing things yourself. Because the greatest among us is not those who walk around as the most spiritual elite. No, the greatest among us are the ones who are broken, who truly understand we need a Savior. We need a God who redeems and restores us. Because pride is our enemy. Spiritual pride is full in our churches these days. Spiritual pride is those people who walk around thinking, I'm better than so-and-so because I have a nice clothes, I have a nice, bigger, fatter Bible, amen, and I've got a nicer car, and I've got all these other nice things, and I, haven't, you know, haven't, I don't have the same issues they have. At the end of the day, I promise you, at the end of the day, they're just Pharisees in different churches, amen. Because look what Jesus said there. He says, humility, humility truly is about loving people where they are. That's how you show humility, loving people where they are. And you might not think about it. You might be thinking, how is that being humble? Because you're lowering yourself. You're thinking less of yourself to think, I can serve you. Why? Because I'm not above you. I'm not beneath you. I'm beside you. I'm beside you, brother. So I can come alongside of you because I'm not below you and I'm not above you, but we are in the same fight. In this whole discourse in chapter, um, in chapter 18 of Matthew, he lays all this out. This is Jesus saying, this is how my community of people will look. They will look like children. They will look like lost sheep. They will look like this. He's saying, this is what the trademarks of my community will look like. And he builds on this. He builds on this in the next part. And I'm going to show you this here. He talks about the temptation of sin. Look what he does. Woe to the world for temptation to sin. For it is necessary that temptation comes. It's necessary. Temptation is going to come. But woe to the one to whom temptation comes. Because it is going to come. You better be careful is what he's saying. But if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better for you to, be, to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet to be thrown to eternal fire. But if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown to hell of fire. So you might be thinking, why in the world does Jesus talk about children being humble and then he has sin following it? Because you need to understand here, it is prideful people that think they don't have a problem with sin. It's pride that tells us, that's not me. 
You know what I mean? Think about that. In a sermon, and let's say I preach about murder, you're automatically going to think, I'm not a murderer. I'm not somebody who needs this sermon. Why? And automatically, you're going to disqualify yourself and make yourself a liar and a murderer. Why? Because Jesus raises the stakes and says, it's not those who kill with the knife, it's those who kill with the heart, because the look at your brother and hate him in your heart is just as bad as murdering. It baffles me that we have a culture these days, a church culture that's obsessed with the Ten Commandments, using it like a rod to beat people with, when at the end of the day, the Ten Commandments doesn't point to us, the Ten Commandments points to the cross. It says we're all broken. Because God's pride grows in us and festers in us like a wound and says, he's talking about somebody besides me. Spiritual pride is so quick to say it's not my problem. I don't have an issue with that. That might be for somebody, but it's not for me. And so this is why he says, be careful. Because they're probably thinking, I'm like a little kid. Jesus says, no, you're not. You're not like a little kid. Because if you were like a little kid, if you were humble like a child, then you would treat sin seriously. And if we treated sin seriously, that would show our humility. Why? Because it's pride that doesn't treat sin seriously. You know, pride says, I'm doing fine. I don't need no help. I'm doing good. Let's ask your spouse, brother. Let's ask your spouse, sister. Let's ask your children, mom and dad, how good you really are doing. Because I'll be honest with you, we all need some help. We all struggle. There is nobody in here who has conquered sin and is living the perfect life. If you are, I got, I got good news for you. You're surrounded by people who haven't. The chief of sinners being here among us. Because nobody has it all together. And this is why Jesus has this big, big sermon here about being humble like a child and treating temptation seriously, treating sin seriously, because pride is the root of all sin. It's pride. pride I, I'll prove it to you. Pride is the root of all sin. I'll prove it to you. You make another God because you want to be God. You're pride. Your pride says, I don't like that God, therefore I'm going to make my own God who's made in my image and made in my likeness and does what I want to do. Therefore, you're making an idol in your own image, which is pride, is the roost of the base. You murder, why? Because you think, he did me wrong, or she did me wrong. I will hurt them. I, me, she. This is all language that says, I am God. I'm going to make my way. You steal because you don't have something. You cheat because you want something that you don't have. Once again, it's just, it's just flipping the narrative around either way you want to take it, but I promise you the root of it's pride. The root of the sin is pride. Because you think God is withholding something from you. I do it too. And at the end of the day, he says here, he says we have to take sin seriously. Because prideful people say, I can save myself. I don't have a problem. I can take care of myself. I don't need no help. Isn't that the opposite of the gospel? Isn't that the opposite of the Bible? That it's because we could not save ourselves that Christ had to come and save us? It's because we could not climb the mountain that God had to come down the mountain? Isn't it true that we could not get our hands dirty enough so God had to get his hands dirty? This is the truth of Scripture, church. And if that doesn't humble us, I don't know what else will. I don't know what else will. Think about the, the gravity of this. He says, if your arm, hand, whatever you want to say, causes you sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. 
Now, I'm not saying we all go get some screwdrivers and hatchets and we say, it's a sin temptation party. Uh, you know, you put your arm up, you've been sinning. No, look, wrong answer. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying we be mutilating people. I'm not saying we go around cutting each other's appendages off. I'm not saying anything like that. But what I am saying here is Jesus is showing you just how seriously to take sin. Well, Pastor Nick, I can't cut my arm. I'm not asking you to turn off your arm. This ain't no Saul movie, amen. This ain't nothing like that. The OGs, you know. Amen. This is nothing like that. But I'll tell you what we can do. Pay careful attention here, church. Pay careful, careful attention here. I'll tell you what we can do. If I have a problem drinking alcohol, I'm not going to be around it. I'm going to cut it off from my life. I'm not going to be around it, and I'm not going to associate with people who do it. Because I have a problem. I'm going to cut that part of my life off and say, that is hurting my family, that is hurting my spiritual walk, that is hurting me. And I'm going to cut that off. I'm going to cut it off in such a way where I'm not going to be around it. I'm not going to run with people that do it. I'm not going to hang out with people that do it. I'm not going to have it in my fridge. I'm not going to have it around my kids. I'm making a drastic step where I'm cutting, severing it off. Talk about being radical with it. Maybe you're somebody who you, you have an addiction to gambling. You say, man, I can't hang on to my funds. I want to spend it on this. I want to spend it on that. Then guess what? Get a stupid phone. Not a smartphone, amen. Get a dumb phone. Get a jitterbug. You'll get service, Amen. You'll get service and that battery lasts 17 days. And you might be thinking, Pastor Rick, that's a little bit too radical. No, let me tell you what's going to happen. Whenever your friends see you, they're going to make fun of you. You know what you're going to be able to do? You're going to be able to witness them, share the gospel with them. Why? Because you say, I've got a sin problem, brother, and I've got this phone because guess what? I've got a Savior who died for me, and I've been set free. It's sad for me to walk around in bondage where I've been set free by the King of Kings, and then God's using your daggum jitterbug to lead somebody to Christ. I'm telling you guys, you've got to take it seriously. If you've got a problem with pornography, don't have a computer in your house. Don't have internet. You might be like, well, I don't know if I can make it. Welcome to the 90s. You can make it for the past 7,000, 8,000 years. We didn't have it. We can do without it. Because guys, you might be like, that's a little bit too radical. No, I'm telling you guys, we have to take sin seriously because it's our pride that tells us it's not that big a deal. It's our pride that festers say it's not that big a deal, brother. If it's not that big a deal, quit it. Quit doing it. Just stop it. Cold turkey. Because I hate to say it, but it's oftentimes when you finally realize you have a problem, there's a trail of destruction behind you that proves that you do have a problem. And it's only after you've seen the destruction that you truly realize the harm you've done. And then I hate to even say it even further, but by then, for some people, it's already too late. Because they've seen brokenness and brokenness and brokenness. And they've broken relationships that are going to take years and decades to heal. And it's all because they love their sin more than they loved their people. And that's why Jesus says here, you've got to be humble like a child. You have to take sin seriously. Because it's humble people that take sin seriously. It's prideful people that don't take sin seriously. It's prideful people that think, that's not me, that's somebody else. And you might be thinking, well, Pastor Nick, what in the world does that got to do with the lost sheep? I'll show you. So the lost sheep, the parable of lost sheep, this is not like the parable of the lost sheep you're used to hearing. This is completely different. Many people read this parable and they automatically think, well, if I'm reading the Bible horizontally, then this is just like the other parable of the lost sheep. No, this parable of the lost sheep is situated in Matthew 18. It's surrounded by passages that have to deal with humility and forgiveness. It has no way, shape, form, or fashion to do with evangelism. That doesn't make sense. 
It makes no sense for Jesus to talk about children being humble, pride being serious, taking sin seriously and not being prideful, and being humble enough to take sin seriously, and then throwing out, hey, if you lose your sheep, go find it. It makes no sense. Talk about a squirrel, amen? And Jesus didn't chase rabbits like your pastor, amen? He didn't do that. He stayed on point. So this is a little bit different. Why? Because this lost sheep is not an unbeliever. This lost sheep is a believer. You might be like, how do you know that, Pastor? Like, there are winks in the Scripture that let you know Jesus is talking about a believer who's a member of the household of God, not an unbeliever who's not a member of the household of God. Notice the vocabulary. Look what it says here. See that you do not spies one of these little ones. So once again, what's he doing? The very opening passage, he's relating this story to the first story. Y'all see that? Little one, little one. For I tell you that in heaven that their angels see the face of the Father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and if one of them gone astray? So look what it says there. The word gone astray, to wander off does not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one who's astray. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that the one of these little ones should perish. So remember, I know this is about a believer. Why? Because he has little one at the beginning, he has little one at the end. You see that? He makes a sandwich, Right? He has little one at the beginning, little one at the end. He says, so that these little ones will not perish. In the middle of that, he says, they have gone astray, and the Father goes and brings them back. So what he's saying here, he's really trying to get us to understand that when our brother is lost in sin, we as the body of believers, we have to be like a shepherd, and we have to try our best to get that brother or sister and win them back. And then when they come back, we don't hold their past against them, but we celebrate that they are with us in the presence. And we celebrate it. Why? Because they are a part of us. They were, they did not leave us, but they were wandering away. And guess what? They come back and we celebrate that they have conquered their sin and taken it seriously. They've conquered their sin and taken it seriously. Why? Because you know what prideful do? Well, they'll, they'll come back when they're good and ready. Humble people say, brother, I love you enough. I'm going to tell you the truth. Humble people, guess what? Go after their friends and say you really messed up. Remember I was talking about that last week? How it takes a lot of courage to confront your friends? It takes a lot of courage to go to your friends and say, you're living in sin, brother. And you've been redeemed from this. Christ purchased you. He bought you. You can't be doing this. And you know what they're probably going to say? This probably tells you the fruit. This probably shows you their true heart. Because let me tell you something. It is impossible. Pay attention here. It is a, impossible for a true believer of Jesus Christ to live in sin openly and publicly and not be repentful and remorseful. It's not. It's not possible. They don't, they don't, they don't exist in Scripture. Somebody who's living that lifestyle and unrepentant, unresponsive, unremorseful. I'm talking about for decades and decades. I'm talking about people who 34 years ago, they're, they're like, I used to go do this, I used to go that. Brother, I've got sad, sad truth for you. In the parable of the sower and the seed, you are the seed that the enemy snatched away. You are the seed that the thorns choked out. You are the seed that's in the path. You are not the seed that found good soil and it grew up. Why? Because if the seed finds good soil, if the God of the universe changes us, he does it all the way through. And there might be a season we wander astray, but let me promise you something. A season's not a decade. A season's not 20, 50 years. And at the bedside confession, they say, you know what? I'm going to start walking with the Lord again. No, my friend, that is not how this works. Because that's contrary to Scripture. Everybody who meets Jesus has changed. 
Everybody meets Jesus has changed. He takes the fishermen of fish and makes them a fisherman of men. He takes the, uh, the leader of ISIS, amen, in the scriptures, Paul, and makes him the greatest evangelist the world ever known. This is what our God does. He takes the broken tax collector and makes him rich in mercy to be a member of the kingdom of God. He takes the, the harlot and the prostitute and makes them women and daughters of God. This is what God does. He takes broken and makes it whole for his glory and our good. This is what God does. He doesn't halfway start something, amen. He finishes everything he starts. And nestled in between this, Chris, this is not in the notes back there, but I'm just going to read to you because I'm going to show you just how much, how much we take things out of context. Verse number 15, it's not on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, read with me. In Matthew 18, verse number 15, look what it says here. If your brother sins against you and tell him his faults between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And if he does not listen to you, take one of the others along with you, and every charge may be established by the evidence of the two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So you know what that means? He's saying if he refuses to listen to you, if he refuses to listen to your brothers and sisters, if he refuses to listen to the church who he's a member of, then he's an unbeliever. Because he's not listening to the people of God. He is an unbeliever. Look what he says there. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you, if two of you agree on earth about anything that is asked, then it's done for them by the Father who is in heaven. Verse number 20, the most highly quoted, miscontextual verse in Scripture. You ready to read it? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. How many times have you heard that on Wednesday night prayer meetings? Where two or three are gathered, Pastor, he'll be there with us. Did you not understand that has to do with church discipline? Did you read the story? Well, Jesus is saying, guess what? When two or three go to win back their brother or sister, where two or three are going in the right spirit, in humility, not in pride, are going with the fruits of the spirit, going to win their brother, not curse their brother, going to build their brother or sister up, going to retrieve their brother and sister from the far country, going with the right motives, the right attitude, the right talk, the right everything you can imagine. If they're going in the right spirit, then guess what Jesus promises them in verse number 20? I'm going to go with them. So when you go to retrieve your brother or sister out of sin, if you're in the right motive, the right attitude, the right, right biblical basis, I'm talking about you've got to be right, 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 biblical, biblical, biblical. If you do everything you can biblically to be there in the right, Jesus promised, I'll be with you. So it has nothing to do with church service. It has nothing to do with a small group, amen. It has everything to do with Jesus saying, I'm going to be with you where there are two or three gathered to do the right business where there are two or three gathered who are humble like children, who are taking sin seriously because they understand they used to cut off it or pluck it out. When they are going after a lost sheep, when they go and they try to win their brother, I'll be with them. Do you see how he's building here? Do you see this? I lost some of you back at the sheep. I'm sorry. But I want you to read the Bible like this and see that Jesus has really got something he wants us to understand. He starts with one. He's connecting pearls. He's building and building and building. And you might be thinking... Well, Pastor Nick, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand what they've done to me. This is why Jesus has the caboose. This is where Jesus literally is going to tie everything up. And you're probably thinking, and you might be like Peter. I'm like Peter here. You're thinking, man, if my brother wrongs me, I don't know about all that, Jesus. Let me tell you, I'm all about being a kid. 
I'm all about taking sin seriously. I'm all about looking for sheep. I was a hide-and-seek champion, amen? He says, I'm all about doing everything you want me to do. I'm all about going after my brother. He says, but I'm going to draw the line here and say that you want me to go and make things right. And what does Peter say in verse number 21? Our next point, our last point, friendship requires forgiveness. Look what he says in verse 23. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me that I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So do you see this? So look what's happening in the scriptures. Pay attention once again. I know, I know, I know. Some of you are like, Vroom. Uh, but I really want you to see it. I really want you to see it. He's saying we've got to be humble like children. We've got to be humble, and we've got to understand that our help comes from the Lord. We have to be humble enough where sin does not have its way. We've got to be humble enough where we understand we are all sinners in need of saving. We've got to take sin seriously. Not only that, but he builds on that even more. He says, and when our brother goes astray, he's like a lost sheep. We should try to go after him. How should we try to go after him, you might be thinking? We go by ourselves. If we don't go by ourselves, we take our brothers and sisters with us. If they don't take our brothers and sisters with us, then we take our church with us. And if our church, they won't hear any of that, then they're like an unbeliever, and we should wash our hands of them. Disfellowship with them is what Paul would call it. Why? Because they are no longer a part of us because they weren't a part of us to begin with. And then what does he say? Peter's like, hey, Jesus can we put an asterisk by that? Can we put an asterisk by that and say, hey, if they've really, really wronged us, if they've really, really hurt us, then can we just maybe go seven times? Look what he says there. He says, I've got a question, Jesus. I love the thing you're saying, but I want to be a special person. I want a special clause here. And here's the thing you don't understand about Peter. Peter is doubling the normal Jewish custom. The normal Jewish custom in the Old Testament was if somebody wronged you, your brother or sister wronged you, or they did things that hurt you, guess what? You were to forgive them three times. Three times. After three times, bye Felicia. Amen, you were done with them. I mean, you know what I mean? Block them, delete them, they done, they dead, they gone. So what does Peter do? Peter says, you know what, Lord, I hear you, but how often am I supposed to give, forgive my brother? Seven times? You see what Peter's trying to do? Peter's trying to show Jesus... I'm like a child, Lord. I understand that you want the best of me, so I'm going to double what you're saying. I'm going to raise the bar. But do you see what Jesus does? Jesus raises the bar even further than Peter's willing to raise the bar because he's showing us that, guess what? We have to be humble enough like children that we understand us being a good person, us being humble, and us being forgiveness has nothing to do with us but everything to do with the power of God. Do you see that? He says, you're willing to forgive somebody seven times? I'm saying 70 times seven. Isn't it amazing in the scriptures, Jesus always raises the bar? You know why he raises the bar? It goes back to the very famous words, what is impossible with God. I mean, what is impossible with man is not impossible with God. What is impossible with man is not impossible with God. Over and over again, Jesus is showing us it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. He proves it to us yet again. Because he's going to tell this last parable. Hang in there, guys. Hang in there like a hair in a biscuit. Amen. We're about to get through. Look what he does here. Verse 23. Therefore, what is it therefore, therefore? I'm teaching you something. I'm trying to get you to understand this. Therefore is therefore a reason. So what does he mean? As the thunder rolls. Uh, he means, guess what? Everything he said before this is about to be built on by this. This is the caboose. Therefore, because I said all that, this is what you should do. The kingdom of heaven, it may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. You read that and you don't bat an eye, 10,000 talents. Maybe like I was when I was a kid, he must have been really gifted. He was good at soccer. He was good at basketball. He was good at archery. 10,000. He got all the talents. I hate to ruin Sunday school for you, but talents has nothing to do with talent. Talents is a unit of measurement. It's a weight in Scripture to represent a wealth of, of, of literally of income. So a talent is an obscene amount of money. An obscene amount of money. This brother here owes his master 10,000 talents. Just to give you an idea, in modern day terms, if we were to equate this to how much money this is, if we, let's just say this individual made $30,000 a year, he made $15 an hour, that's the math, that's how that works out, that's $30,000 a year. Let's assume that he was a normal, everyday citizen working $15 an hour, $30,000 a year. 10,000 talents for this brother that he owed his master, making $30,000 a year, guys, was $6 billion. Is the modern-day equivalent of you owing somebody $6 billion. Yeah, swallow your gum when you read the Bible next time, amen? Because you read through that, he owed him 10,000 talents. But when Peter hears this and Jesus said, the man was looking to settle accounts, he was probably thinking 100 denarii, 100 days wages, maybe a talent. What does Jesus do? Jesus takes what they're thinking and he raises it. He says 10,000 talents. He's over there. Philip, you got your, you got your calculator? Because then they're thinking nobody has that much wealth. Nobody could have that much wealth. Nobody would loan somebody that much. But look what Jesus does. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Did you just notice he lied? There's no way, humanly possible, this brother could pay back $6 billion in the equivalents here. There's no way. No way he could write a check for this. No way he could work his entire life and pay this back. In true honesty, he was bankrupt. He's showing that, guess what? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Look what he does here. So the servant fell and said, Have patience with me. And look at verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Some of y'all have been worried about the student loan thing. We're going to get there, amen. Uh, we're going to get there. Verse number 28. I'm, I promise we're going to get there. I'm going to use it in the gospel way. Verse number 28. But when the same servant went out. So look, this guy just got forgiven 10,000 talents. This guy just got forgiven $6 billion worth of our currency debt. I don't know about you, but if I just got that much debt forgiven, we'd be going crazy, amen. We'd be getting appetizers at the restaurant, amen. Uh, that's when you know you're rich. When you're getting appetizers and you're getting drinks, some of y'all, you loaded, amen. You don't have to, you flex on me every time, like I'll take a Coke and we get into the appetizer, amen. You rich, I'm not on your level, amen, because our appetizer is the bread, amen. Uh, what appetizer do you want? We'll take some free rolls. Bring the rolls, amen. You want water? Yeah. Every now and then, he'll be like, can I get a Coke? I'm like, we're sharing, <laughs> amen. 
we share because we can't be afford to get anybody cokes up in here. Uh, because let me tell you, that's just wealth I don't know of. Uh, and so this brother here gets forgiven six billion dollars worth of debt, an obscene amount of money, and he goes out. He went out and he found one of his fellow servants. So he, he actually is a man over top of other people as well. He's a leader. He's a CEO, you could say, who owed him a hundred denarii. I'm not a smart man, but six billion versus 100 is vastly different, amen. Very different. A denarii was a common day's wage. This is a hundred days worth of wage. So if you were to be, do the math in your head, that's somewhere around $10,000 a year. $10,000 for, you know, 100 days, remember 30 years? Remember that? We did that a while ago. I hope you did in your head. Uh, a third of 30,000 is 10,000. And so he was, you know, 100 days worth of labor, 10,000 compared to 6 billion. I don't know about you, but I would say that one of those is larger than the other. If you put them on the screen, I think you could say that one's bigger. You know what I'm saying? The other day, I was messing with one of the kids Emily and Annie's with, and, and I asked her, I said, what do you want more? Do you want a dollar or a hundred pennies? And she said, I want the dollar. Uh, you know what I mean? Why? Because she, in her head, she's just not like, it's the dollar. And then I said, well, do you want a dollar or do you want eight quarters? She's like, the dollar. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, literally, she was just like, I can't, I can't, it's so hard. I mean, you know, she was just like, I'm so, I mean, there's more of them, but there's not more of this one. I mean, I don't know if the dollar sounds good. She just like, it was in her head, she couldn't really comprehend in this situation, we can all comprehend. Six billion is larger than 10,000. 10,000 talents is way larger than 100 denarii. Look what he says here. He seized him. He began to choke him. Pay me what you owe. So his servant, his fellow servant, fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. Sound familiar? Anybody have a little deja vu? That's exactly what the other servant said to his master. Have patience with me, and I will repay you. What does this guy do? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Well, the master of the house found out. Look what it says, verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers that he should pay all his debt. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. Look what he says there, your brother from your heart. Did you see this? Forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus takes this entire sermon in chapter 18 of Matthew, starts off with a child, goes to a cutting off appendages, amen, goes to losing the sheep, goes to how to handle conflict, goes to telling a parable about a servant forgiving debt. And he does all this because he really wants us to understand something. He really wants us to get this. He really wants us to get that 
dealing with people is messy. And the closer you get to people, guess what? The messier they get. Because the truth of the matter is, ladies and gentlemen, we all have rough edges. When you brush up against somebody, you're going to get cut every now and then. None of us are perfect. We're going to hurt. We're going to harm each other. We're going to rack up debts, per se, against each other. And the truth of what Scripture is saying here to us is we have to learn how to forgive people. We have to learn to let things go, you should say. We have to learn in the midst of all this going on, we have to understand this. Let me tell you, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about here. Humble people are good forgivers. Humble people are good forgivers. Why? Because they understand they can forgive others because they've been forgiven much. It's humble people that make the best forgivers. How do I know this? Children. You see what Jesus did? He tied it all. In a nice, neat bow, you've got to be like children. Children forgive each other. They forgive you, mom or dad. You can totally, totally wreck it, break a promise, do everything imaginable, and they're really small, and they will look at you, I still love you, daddy. I forgive you. And the next day, you can put on a bed at night, they're screaming, I can't stand you. They wake up, I love you, daddy. I love you, mama. Because they have a short list of keeping wrongs. Because they're humble. They truly understand, guess what, mommy and daddy, I love them, I care for them. They care for me, they love me. And they give you grace. They give you forgiveness. But sadly, the older we become, the more hardened our hearts become. The more stubborn we become. The more we hold grudges against people who we can't remember what we're fighting about. Guys, I see this in funeral homes all the time. I preach several funerals here. You know this. And I kid you not, it'd be two families. But they got the same last name. You have one group over here and another group over here. And they'll take turns going up to the casket. It's such a sad, sad situation. And they won't talk to each other. They'll argue. They'll bicker. They'll fight. And they'll say, you don't know about them. You don't know about them. It's literally they, the same blood of this person runs through all their veins. And yet they are fighting each other about stupid, childish things. And it's because pride makes us unforgivable, makes us unforgiving. Not unforgivable, unforgiving. Pride seeps in and says, I have been wronged more than you've been wronged. And because I have been wronged more than you've been wronged, and because my feelings are superior than your feelings, I'm not going to forgive you because you have to pay the price to me. If you really think about it, unforgiveness is making you the God of your own heart and saying, you have to bring me a sacrifice that I deem is acceptable. And until I have a sacrifice that I deem is acceptable, I'm going to hold out on you, whatever you've done, until I deem it to be acceptable. Ladies and gentlemen, who made you God? Because the truth of Scripture is we should forgive much because we've been forgiven much. We should be quick to show grace. Why? Because we've been shown so much grace. We sing that beautiful old hymn time and time again, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Guys, amazing grace. We don't sing common grace, mediocre grace, somewhat grace, value-sized grace. No, we sing amazing grace. God has shown me amazing grace because I failed him 10,000 times and he still loves me. I've wronged him every day and he still cares for me. 
that does all that. And you might be thinking, well, Pastor Nick, how in what in the world does that have to do with our modern-day context? The student loan forgiveness plan. I'll prove it to you. Stay with me now. Don't be tooting your horn, amen. Thinking, yeah. Stay with me here. Because what I've seen here lately is people thinking that the student loan forgiveness is just the same as the gospel's way of forgiveness. It shouldn't be people who are about forgiveness. I promise you, they are not the same. They are not the same. Because I'll show it to you this way. Student debt is money owed to an institution that somebody took out. It's you took out money from an institution, from a third party. And I want you to stay with me. I'm not saying this to be political. I'm saying this to show you how people twist the Bible to suit their own images and suit their own fashion. So stay with me here. Student debt is you borrow money from someone else to pay the school someone for the fees you took out. There's a third party involved that's not the government, that's a private agency. The private agency. Now, the government sanctions the loans, they back the loans, but they themselves do not give the loans, per se. It is another agency that gives the loans on the government's behalf. You follow me? This is literally how it works. Literally, when I took out a student loan, it was not the United States Treasury that sent me a bill. It was Great Lakes. Amen. I hate those people. Just kidding. I love them. Amen. Uh, you know who they are. You get the mountains. Y'all have seen the Blue Mountains, ain't you? Great Lakes. Because that's what I owed money to. Now, the government secured the loan and said they, that they would back up the loan. But guess what? At the end of the day, it was not them who I owed the money to. It was Great Lakes who I owed the money to. And I signed a piece of paper. I morally said as a man that I am taking out this loan and I understand I owe the debt. See, that's the difference. That's, that's the big thing you understand here. So the individual is paying back the amount that he took out. And you might think, well, how in the world, why, why, why do you think it's called student loan forgiveness? It cannot be called student loan forgiveness because it's student loan transfer. Because in order for it to be student loan forgiveness, what would have to happen is that institution, Great Lakes, would have to wipe the debt and say, we're going to eat the cost. We're going to eat the cost. If they decided as an institution to eat the cost and pay for it themselves, then it's student loan forgiveness. But instead, what you see on our day and age is it's not student loan forgiveness, it's student loan transfer. You see, what the gospel isn't, it's the gospel isn't, the Lord taking my sin debt and putting it on somebody else. No, the gospel is the Lord taking my debt and paying for it himself. When I am the one who owes him the debt. You see, the gospel is the one who I owe the debt to is deciding to eat the debt and pay for the debt themselves. Therefore, that's the gospel. That is not the student loan debacle. And we're, people are getting so confused. Thinking, oh, you don't understand, you don't understand. No, you don't understand biblically. The big difference is the person who I owed the debt to, which was God Almighty, I had a sin debt, had a debt I could not pay. I was crushed under the weight of it. The, the Lord of heaven did not take my debt and put it on Emily. He did not take my debt and put it on Kenneth and think if Kenneth does good, he can pay for it. Emily does good, he can pay for it. No, the Lord said, I will take the debt on myself. I will take the debt of myself and I will pay for the debt. So I'm only able to be forgiven because somebody paid my debt and it was not just anybody who paid my debt, it was the person who I owed the debt to. That's the difference, church. But I hate to say it, but I love you, but some of you have been roped in thinking, no, let me tell you something, it's a gospel thing. It is not a gospel thing. It is not even on the same parameter. To equate anything man does to what God himself has done is terrible. They're not even in the same ballpark. Nowhere in the same fashion. Because do understand here what the student loan forgiveness plan did. 
was they didn't forgive the debt. They put the debt on everybody else to pay. They spread the debt around. And you can disagree with me all you want to. Biblically, I'm trying to, I mean, you can try to, I'm, this is not a political thing. Do you understand me? I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to get you to see with the lens of Scripture what's going on in our world. Because this is what happens all the time. People twist Bible things and say, no, this is, this is, this is what's right. When I'm telling you, that is far from Scripture. And I know what some of you think, once again, your pride's welling up. Well, it didn't cost God anything. You see, God didn't just forgive the debt. He paid for the debt. He paid for it with his own blood. He said, the thing that I'm requiring of you that you cannot pay, I'm going to step in and pay for it with my precious blood of my son. So the one we owed the debt to, God Almighty steps in and says, I'll take it. So we can enjoy forgiveness. Why? Because look what happens in the story. The man, the master doesn't rob somebody else to pay for the debt. No, the master says, the debt is owed to me and I will forgive it because it's owed to me. I will eat it. There's not a third party. He says, I will eat it. And so we, stay with me here, stay with me here. Biblically, if you take out a debt, you are required to pay back that debt, ladies and gentlemen. Now, there is a year of Jubilee in the Old Testament. Do not understand me here. There is a year where the Lord sanctioned a period of getting out of debt. That is absolutely true biblically. But I hate to tell you this, I don't want to go back to OT. Some of y'all thinking all day long, let's go back to OT, baby. I don't want to go back to OT. I'm, all, I'm pretty good in the NT. Amen? Old Testament, New Testament. Amen? I'm pretty good in the New Testament. Why? Because I like bacon. I'm pretty good in the NT. Why? Because I like grace. I'm pretty good in the NT. Why? Because I like that Christ paid our debt. So if you take things out of the Old Testament and twist them to suit your agenda, once again, you're twisting Scripture to say what you want. And we cannot do that, church. This is causing division after division after division in our churches. And I promise you, we are not American Christians. We are Christian Americans. We are Christian Americans. Which means when you walk through that door, you're not a Democrat, you're not a Republican, you're a Christian. You bear the image of God. And you're supposed to be a member of the household of God. Which means, guess what? We do what the book calls us to do. We do what the book calls us to do. And you can disagree with it. Let me tell you something. There's stuff all the time I, don't, I disagree with the Lord on, but guess what? I'm not God. I'm not God. But God knows better. God knows better. And in our friendships, stay with me here. I know I lost some of Some of you are ticked off. I'm going to get an email about this. Amen. I guarantee it. Guarantee it. I'm going to get a Facebook message. It's coming. But you, you've called me here to tell you the truth about these things. And I try to take cultural context to get you to really see what's going on. We should be people of great forgiveness and great mercy because we've been shown great forgiveness and great mercy. So there are some of you, I'll be honest with you, I'll be really, really honest with you. You should be people of great mercy and great forgiveness. That if somebody owes you a debt, Maybe your kinfolk owes you $100. Let's just be honest here. You don't need the 100 You forgot about the 100 a long time ago, but you've got your little ledger in your head. They owe me $100. Let me tell you all something. When you owe somebody in your family money, Thanksgiving tastes different. When you're eating chicken, 
And you know what happens? No, I'll show you this. This is what I'm, I'm trying to, I really am. I, I love you enough to tell you about this stuff because it's, it's so true. When somebody you love and care about owes you, let me show you what happens here. When they owe you, let me show you what happens. When you see them do things, you get bitterness and hurt and pride in your head. They owe me $100, they can go to Florida. You do it. They owe me a couple grand, but guess what? They can buy a new truck. So if you are, stay with me here. Look at me. I love you enough to tell you this. If you are financially stable enough, if you are financially stable enough to eat a cost for your brother or sister, you know what you do? Eat it. Eat it. You might be Pastor, you don't understand. I promise you, I've loaned a good friend money before. And I hate to say this, but I was not fully repaid what I owed, what was owed. And I didn't hound him. I didn't show up at his house. I'm taking his tire off. You know, walk out there. Calvary Baptist Church was here. Come get your tire, bro. I'm not a thug. I'm not a mob boss, amen. I'm not that. I'm not that way. I'm not going to do that. You know what I did do? I let it go. I had, did, did my pride say, you're married, you're newly wed, you need the money? Oh yeah, my pride said that. Every time Emily says she needs to get her nails done, my pride's like, if I had that hundred. If I had that hundred. But here's the thing, look at me, I love you enough to tell you this. You have to really understand that the relationship is more valuable than the money and your pride. And that's hard. And this is in marriage, too. Because in marriage, you start tacking up the debt. I did the dishes. I did the laundry. I changed four diapers today. What have you done? That's what you do. And I say that as she looks at me for this way. Amen. <laughs> and you might look at me with your judgmental eyes. Amen. You're in the same boat, bro. And I'm keeping my list of wrongs. And you might think, I'm not mad, I'm not bitter. When you get mad, it comes out. When you get mad, let me just show you what you've not done in this household. So if you see two people who've been married a long time, yesterday I, I buried a young lady, or an older lady who had been married for, to her husband 52 years. Hashtag goals, right? 52 daggum years. If you've been married that long, let me tell you something. You're not seeing two people who are just the greatest people in the world. No, you're seeing two people who are masterful forgivers. So every night before you go to bed, brother, sister, wipe the deck clean for your spouse. Wipe the deck clean. Do things like that. Why? Because that's what God would have us to do. We can show great mercy. We can show such grace. Why? Because we've been shown such mercy. We've been shown such grace. That's what we do. And let me tell you something. I'm telling you from somebody who I, for a long time, I was, I would preach about forgiveness, but I, I, I literally could not stand my father. Y'all know this. Some of y'all know this about me. I was so mad at my dad. So mad at him. 
and the Lord broke me. Literally, he broke me down. Let me see, you've just lost so much time. When the boys were born. When the boys were born, we were all there in Louisville, in the NICU unit, at Cosairs. And you had these tiny little babies that were just 23 and a half weeks old. You could literally fit them in your hand. Weigh less than, less than two pounds, both of them did. And I hadn't seen my dad in years. For years and years, I hadn't seen him. I was angry, I was bitter, I was mad. He called me, I had to hit decline. Didn't want to talk to him. And then I walked into the hospital room in these tiny little incubators, and I saw this old, frail man of who used to be my dad. I saw him there, and I thought, he's dying. I kid you not, in that moment, the Lord really spoke. He didn't speak to me, don't get me wrong. I didn't hear an audible voice, but I felt the pressure of the Lord's Spirit on me saying, look at what it's cost you. And so I forgave him. In that tension, in that moment, I forgave him. Now, does that mean we left swinging hands? We're the two best friends. That ain't what could have. That means we went down to the bar, got some brewskis. Yeah, pour me one. We didn't do any of that. That means we got matching tattoos, father and son. That means we went camping the next week. No. But what it did mean, pay attention here, pay attention here. This is the last thing I'm going to say. What it did mean was that we could start to build back a little bit of block at a time to what it should have been. Because let me tell you something. Forgiveness is when you choose to forgive somebody. Forgiveness. Reconciliation is when you choose to forgive me and I choose to forgive you. That's called reconciliation. That's two parties coming together. They are reconciled. Make sense? Restoration is when two parties who have forgiven each other who have agreed to come back together are now trying to restore things to better than they were before. The Bible calls us to be forgivers. The Bible calls us to be reconcilers. The Bible also says, though, that we are not able to restore all things. But the Bible does say that there is coming a day when He will restore all things. Well, He will restore all Let's be friends. Let's be people. Let's be a church who's known for humility and he's known for forgiveness. I saw some people yesterday that a long time ago we hurt each other. We did. Saw them at the funeral home. It's always awkward when you see people who have hurt you. Amen. You do like I do. I talk to my wife. She has to psych me up. You can do this. You can go talk to them. I'm thinking, baby, I can't do it. She's like, get over there. You can do this. And I, got, I go over there, and I got I to gotta try to be the bigger person. But at the end of the day, my face is not the same as my heart. And the only person I know who can change my heart is not my wife. I love her to death. She can't change my heart. The only person that can change my heart is the great heart surgeon, Jesus. He says, I've ripped out that heart of stone, and I gave you a heart of flesh. So maybe you need to come pray this morning and say, God, make me humble, and God, help me be a forgiver. Because let me tell you something. It's those people. Look at me. Look at me carefully. Some of y'all, y'all stuck on the student loan thing. I know I shouldn't have used that illustration. I know I shouldn't have. The reality of it is, the people who are good forgivers, they have a lot of friends. They do. They've got a lot of friends. Why? Because they've learned to forgive. 
Well, they didn't come to my kids' soccer game. They didn't come to small groups. They didn't text my birthday. Good news is you got another one, brother. Let's be people of humility. Let's be people of forgiveness. Let's be friends.